When we look back at the great scientists of the past, we think of Newton, Einstein, Darwin and Galileo. These are scientists who could sit in a room and theorise about the world. And, by the use of mathematics, immense brain power and simple experiments, they could come up with ideas that changed the world. The dawn of the 20th century scientific world has made the idea of a lone genius in a study changing the world an ever more distant reality. Rather than being able to come up with a theory with a couple of calculations and prove it with the use of a couple of mirrors and science equipment you today find in a modern day secondary school, it's now more likely to take massive multi-state projects to progress science. There are ever fewer fields where one can do groundbreaking research in your study and remain on the cutting edge of the hard sciences. Physics, biology and chemistry is now a collaborative process with dozens or perhaps hundreds or thousands of scientists all working together on a project. The poster child for this type of collaborative science is the particle accelerator. So what is a particle accelerator? A definition might be useful. Quote, a particle accelerator uses electromagnetic fields to propel charged particles to nearly light speed and contain them in well-defined beams. Close quotes. So what does that actually mean? A particle accelerator is a piece of equipment that uses electric and or magnetic fields to project subatomic particles at high speeds. Sometimes those particles will then collide into a fixed surface, as many of the early particle accelerators did, or, as the later ones would do, they would collide into other particles. Using these as part of physics experiments enables us to learn more about how the universe works by recreating natural conditions of the natural world. The most famous of these today is the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which I imagine is where most of the vast majority of lay people, at least of my generation, first heard about particle accelerators. While today we know particle accelerators for the scientific work they do, there is much more to them than that. Small-scale examples of particle accelerators include the Van de Graaff generator. You know that thing used in science to make your hair stick up? Cathode ray tubes, which are used in older TV sets, and today for use in X-ray machines and cancer chemotherapy. The first accelerator, or the first accelerator at least, to be invented intentionally was in 1930 by John Cockcroft and E.T.S. Walton at the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, England. They were not the first scientists who wanted to look deeper into the structure of matter by penetrating the nucleus. Many were wanting to do so, but Cockcroft and Walton knew that creating and maintaining a voltage would allow them to accelerate particles of radioactively produced alpha particles which would tell them they had succeeded in splitting the atom. This would not be the first time the atom had been split, that was Rutherford in Manchester, but it was the first artificial nuclear disintegration in history. Across the intellectual river from Cambridge 
In Oxford, in 1928, Robert J. Van der was a Rhodes Scholar studying machines that could generate and maintain high voltage. In 1930, while he was doing postdoctoral work, he came up with a similar idea as the Cockcroft and Walton accelerator. In his speech to the American Physical Society in 1931, he described his first model. It consisted of two hollow spherical insulated conductors, 24 inches in diameter and made of aluminium. These were mounted on glass rods 7 feet high and insulated by two silk belts driven by motors that transported electricity of opposite charge to each sphere. Charge was transferred to the belt and discharged inside the spheres, where one was positive and the other negative. This was still the age of the DIY scientist and Van de Graaff made his generator with an ordinary tin can, a small motor and a silk ribbon bought at the five and dime store. Later, he had to go to the chairman of the physics department to request $100 to make an improved version, which he got with some difficulty. Van de Graaff's idea was so simple and effective, it was copied by other universities, such as MIT and the University of Wisconsin. And after experimenting with various forms, he, in 1933, produced the first practical generator for research. The Van de Graaff generator was a particle accelerator used in physics research and was the most powerful of its type during the 1930s. The generators are still used today to generate energetic particles and X-ray beams for nuclear research and nuclear medicine as well as for entertainment and educational purposes due to its small nature, meaning it can be used in schools and museums quite easily. Rolf Widerow was a young Norwegian PhD candidate in electrical engineering in Germany and was researching a topic for his thesis. His first idea was something he called the electron beam transformer, but it was rejected by his advisor and so he elected to take a look at an idea by Swedish scientist Gustav Ising for the acceleration of heavy ions in a linear path using different voltages. Widrow received his PhD in 1927, but it was his influence that was to be his longest-lived legacy. Widrow published his findings in a German journal, and these were stumbled upon by Ernst Lawrence, who didn't actually speak German, but the mere diagrams were enough for him to be inspired. Working with David Sloan at Berkeley, they commenced work on what was called a cyclotron. A cyclotron accelerates charged particles outward from the centre along a spiral path. Using Vidro's diagrams as an influence, they, with much effort and failure, constructed the cyclotron, which then became the most powerful accelerator in the world when constructed. Numerous machines were then constructed and Lawrence received the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1939. The next development in particle accelerators again begins in 1922 with a rejected idea from the thesis again of Rolf Woodrow and his first rejected idea. An alternating current in the primary coils accelerates electrons in the vacuum around a circular path. The Betatron was the first machine capable of producing electron beams at energies higher 
that could be achieved with a simple electron gun. So just to backtrack here, in case like me, you aren't scientifically trained enough and are struggling to conceptualise the difference. Cyclotrons and betatrons are similar. Both involve accelerating particles in a ring and keeping them going in a circle using magnetic fields. They look the same in many ways. A cyclotron has a fixed magnetic field that is tailored so particles have the same orbit whatever their energy. Higher energy means they take longer paths and this exactly compensates their extra speed. Particles gain energy from a separately applied electric field synchronised with the orbit time. Betatrons have a time-varying magnetic field. In this accelerator, the field finds itself accelerating the particles and the particles follow a fixed orbit. If you're still struggling, pause the podcast and Google some diagrams to try and get your head around the idea. It's not too complicated once you've got the basics. It was in the 1930s when interest developed in an accelerator that could accelerate electrons to produce X-rays for hospitals and research use. Again, using Rolf Rudrow's ideas, Max Steenbeck in 1935 in Germany started to develop the Betatron, but it took until 1940 for D.W. Kurz to build the first successful Betatron at the University of Illinois. Betatrons were built all over the world for accelerating electrons, though several were designed for protons. Though, as in many things, by the time the Betatron was already being developed, it was beginning to be superseded. As with previous accelerators, these were limited and would often break down. In 1945, a new discovery was made in both the USSR and the United States at almost the same time. The microtron was a concept originating out of the cyclotron, in which the accelerating field is not applied through large D-shaped electrodes, but through a linear accelerator structure. The principle was published nearly simultaneously by Veskler in the USSR and E. M. Macmillan in late 1945. Once discovered, physicists began to immediately try to synchronise particles in an orbit using electric and magnetic fields. These were called the electron synchrotron. The concept of a synchrotron is to synchronise a magnetic field with the energy or momentum of the accelerating particle in order to maintain a constant orbit. Macmillan was the first to begin construction on an electric synchrotron at the University of California. However, the first was created in 1946 in England by modifying an old betatron. The next decade saw a surge in electric synchrotron construction and scientists returning home from the Second World War returning to civilian projects. A synchrotron is an easy concept to get. Cyclotrons work on the principle of increasing kinetic energy of the required charged particle by means of a fixed magnetic field and a high-frequency oscillating electric field. In a synchrotron, the particle is accelerated by means of a magnetic field, which allows for giving a very high kinetic energy to the particle while in a fixed circular loop. Kinetic energy, remember, is merely the energy of motion. There were many developments over the Second World War in skill and technology, such as radar, electronics and nuclear physics. So when peace reigned, 
scientists were eager to return to research, not warfare. Additionally, the Cold War grew, and in lieu of hot conflict, the war took place in many proxy forms. This ranged from rocketry in the space race to scientific research. So firstly, scientists benefited from funding from the US government, who wanted to beat their Soviet counterparts. The traditional American desire for private enterprise was put on the back burner, giving the scientists the ability to run large-scale science projects, such as happened previously with the Manhattan Project. Governments were now far more trusting of scientists to use large amounts of money effectively. MEV, or MV, is the use of electron volts, and it is what the power of a particle accelerator is measured in. The Cockcroft and Walton design reached levels of 500k EV. The Van de Graaff generator charged each sphere to approximately 700k EV, reaching a total of 1.5 MeV. The first cyclotron reached 1.22 MeV, but after a decade of tinkering it reached 10 MeV. The first electric synchrotron reached 70 MeV, but rapid improvement saw a 140 MeV version and, in 1954, saw an electron synchrotron completed at the University of Glasgow, reaching 350 MeV. The post-war era saw a proliferation in research and interest, and all the while new and competing ideas were being tried. In 1937, H. A. Beath and M. E. Rose at Cornell published several observations about the limitations of cyclotrons. They spotted that at higher energies, the change in the mass of ions from resonance with the magnetic field caused deep focusing and a subsequent decrease in beam density. If science was to progress, then something new would have to be developed. As we mentioned a little earlier, the work of the American Macmillan and Soviet Veskler in 1945 had as one of its key elements the stability of particle accelerators. And so, cyclotron researchers aimed to put their theories into action to stabilise cyclotrons, in their belief that higher energy cyclotrons were now an achievable aim. By converting a cyclotron into a synchro cyclotron, it was reaching levels of 190 MeV, and within a few years, many other synchro cyclotrons sprang up. The difference between the two was that the cyclotron accelerated the particles in a spiral since the magnetic field is constant, whereas the synchrotron adjusts the magnetic field to keep the particles in a circular orbit. Today, synchro cyclotrons can accelerate protons to 1 GeV. Electrons approach the speed of light with relatively low energies. However, protons do not. They need higher energies in the GeV range to do so. Therefore, to get a proton-synchrotron working took a lot of effort. And it was five years later until a proton-synchrotron was in operation. Scientists at the University of Birmingham were the first to try and aim for energies of 1 GeV. However, scientists in Brookhaven and Berkeley began work on their own proton-synchrotron, and the Brookhaven Cosmotron was finished in 1952 so named because the scientists were aiming for energies similar to those of the radiation bombarding the outer regions of Earth's atmosphere.
the Brookhaven Cosmotron was finished in 1952 and reached energies of 3 GeV, whereas the Berkeley one, finished two years later, reached energies of 6.2 GeV. A development in magnetic technology was presented and published to a team of visiting scientists from the newly set up CERN in Europe, who happened to be in Brookhaven for a presentation on the Cosmotron. Impressed with the potential of this new technology, the two teams collaborated and estimated they could reach energies of 10 times the energy of the Cosmotron and 5 times the energy of the Betatron. In 1959, the CERN Proton Synchrotron was finished and reached 28 GeV. Shortly after that, the Brookhaven version was launched and began operations at 33 GeV. The Brookhaven version, named for the Brookhaven Alternating Gradient Synchrotron, used 240 magnets and held the record for accelerator energy until 1968. It would earn its researchers three Nobel Prizes in physics for various particle discoveries. A linear particle accelerator, sometimes called a LINAC, is a type of particle accelerator that accelerated charged particles to a high speed along a linear beam line. And development of three early forms of the linear particle accelerator at Stanford were met with great success. These lineats are huge constructions and require more than a lab and a few scientists for them to be built. It would need serious money and serious space and for somewhere to really want to host it. It was Stanford which took it most seriously. Stanford got serious about building an electron LINAC capable of multiple GeV. Their LINAC was estimated to cost 114 million US dollars. And in a testament to how serious particle accelerators were in the science proxy war between the USSR and the US, it meant its funding went to the highest level. The building and funding of the LINAC was announced by President Eisenhower who announced it was to be federal responsibility. The Stanford Linear Accelerator was completed in December 1956, and it reached a beam energy of 18.4 GeV in June 1966. In 1990, three of his researchers were awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics for their work that led to the discovery of quarks. Over the next few years, the main focus of particle accelerators was in the United States. The Fermilab Tevatron, built in 1987, was a huge synchrotron. Its rings were around 6.28 kilometers, with energies of up to 1 TeV, hence why it was called a Tevatron. The Tevatron ceased operations on the 30th of September 2011, due to budget cuts and the completion of the Large Hadron Collider. But perhaps the most disappointing part of the United States' attitude to particle accelerators and large science projects was the aborted superconducting supercollider in Texas. The SSC would have cost $6 billion and an annual budget of $200 million, and it would have been a proton-proton collider with a circumference of 87 kilometers. Scientists were hoping to find evidence for the Higgs boson, supersymmetric partners of standard particles, technicolor resonances, new gauge bosons, and much else. 
but almost overnight it was cancelled due to budget cutting of the US Congress at the time. So it is CERN to where we shall go. The European Organisation for Nuclear Research, which, when rendered into French, spells out CERN, was established in 1954 by 12 European countries. Today, ironically, CERN is perhaps most notable, or at least partly notable, for where the World Wide Web was founded in 1989 by Tim Berners-Lee, though that's a story for another day. Headquartered in Switzerland, CERN's first accelerator was a 600 MeV synchro cyclotron built in 1957, while a proton synchrotron accelerator was launched in 1959 with energy beams of 28 GeV, and at the time was the world's highest energy particle accelerator. CERN was also the birthplace of the first Hadron Collider. By the end of the 1950s, Scientists knew that simply colliding particles into a stationary target was not going to have the best results. They needed to get particle beams to collide with each other. The project for the Intersecting Storage Rings ISR, was finished in 1971 and for the next 13 years gave CERN a cutting edge knowledge of colliding beam projects. So after a few more projects we do get to the daddy of all particle accelerators the Large Hadron Collider. The world's largest and highest energy particle accelerator, the collider is contained in a circular tunnel with a circumference of 26.7 kilometers. Though compare that to the superducting super collider in Texas, which would have had a circumference of 87 kilometers, it's practically minuscule. The Large Hadron Collider had its first energy run of eight TeV in total and after an upgrade, it reached 13 TeV, the present world record. The most famous result given to us by the Large Hadron Collider was the confirmation of the Higgs boson particle. But while that's of course the culmination of the previous 80 years of particle accelerator work, I think it's worth going back to something I said at the start of the podcast of science now being a collaborative process. Some of the stats of the Large Hadron Collider are mind-boggling. Never mind that they dug a 26.7 km tunnel, there's thousands of scientists spending their lives on something so complicated, difficult and challenging, and esoteric. The data provided by the Large Hadron Collider is at levels of tens of petabytes per year, analysed by a computer grid-based network connective 170 computing centres in 42 countries. This was built by 10,000 scientists from hundreds of university laboratories from more than 100 countries. The Large Hadron Collider itself straddles two countries. It is a marvel of engineering and the modern day world. How we marvel at the engineering feats of primitive societies building Stonehenge, the Pyramids of Giza, Machu Picchu or any of the great churches and how we imagine in a pre-industrial time where the only energy was man and horsepower, and how challenging it must have been to build these things. Well, we can say the same for the Large Hadron Collider. Perhaps the most interesting thing about the Large Hadron Collider is that people have begun to take a vague interest in particle physics. People talked about particle physics, and what turning on the Large Hadron Collider would lead to. Some of it was of course misinformed, 
with a sort of existential panic going around that turning on the Large Hadron Collider was going to cause a black hole that would end the universe. Of course, the Large Hadron Collider did lead to the discovery of the Higgs boson particle, perhaps the greatest scientific discovery of this century so far. And for that discovery alone, it makes particle accelerators worthy of my list. Gone are the days when natural philosophers had to hide away doing experiments in their homes, all like Galileo and living on house arrest. The particle accelerator shows the extent of humans' view of science and the natural world. Of course, just because science looks remote and pointless, there are often effects on the real world. The space race led to NASA developing a wide range of things such as baby formula and eventually smartphone cameras. But what have particle accelerators ever done for us? Firstly, particle accelerators are very important in treating cancers. PET scanners are normally produced in a particle accelerator as an accelerated electron is fired onto targets to produce X-rays for radiotherapy and imaging. The same X-ray sources are used at airports. Due to the size of most cargo, a particle accelerator is needed to produce the high-energy X-rays that are required. And as particle accelerators get more and more advanced, who knows what they will lead to. The progress of science and increasing our understanding of the world is clearly a great invention. The sheer fact that particle accelerators have expanded our view of the world, the universe and our own existence is the reason why particle accelerators are listed as my 85th greatest invention of all time. <laughs> <laughs>